This is Writers Not Writing, the show where you can get to know your favorite writers and soon-to-be favorite writers by listening to them confess to the ways they procrastinate. Thanks for procrastinating with us. I'm Benjamin Gorman, and the quiet guy behind the glass there is Doug the producer. I write novels and collections of poetry and stuff. Doug tries his best to make me sound better. And each week we have a secret word to listen for. If you catch it, you earn the right to take an extra break at the time of your choosing from whatever is stressing you out. From Not A Pipe Publishing, welcome to Writers Not Writing. Today's secret phrase is leftist propaganda. Welcome, everyone. Uh, today's guest is Eric Scott DeBee. Eric Scott DeBee is a sci-fi fantasy horror author, game designer, and actual play streamer best known for his Shadowbane series set in Forgotten Realms, his World of Ruin apocalyptic fantasy series, and his Justice Vengeance superhero series. Eric, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Benjamin. So uh, regular viewers know we always dress up in costumes like this. That's, you know, this is what we do, but we have to explain them for the folks who are listening on the podcast. So what did you choose to wear today? Well, clearly I am dressed in a tailored Armani suit, all black, obviously, uh, from which arise these little wisps of black smoke. Their source uncanny to human understanding. Um, I could explain this ineffable darkness, but that will cause psychic damage and I don't want to harm your viewers. So best leave these particular secrets unplumbed well and I, I i appreciate that because i chose to wear this elven armor and the the mail underneath the plate is uh, impossible to to pierce so i take no piercing damage but i am very susceptible to psychic damage so if i were to ask eh, you know and, and so folks in the comments section please be gentle i am susceptible to psychic damage um but uh, th- I was going to ask about the smoke, and I am I'm I'm glad I didn't. That but that is it's a probably nice, for it's the a best. nice looking suit though. That's a that is that's a nice suit. Well, I I can't say exactly where I got it from because I am under uh, extra dimensional NDA. So. Yes, yes. Well, and and wearing this mail, I please don't. Like I I could not handle it. <laughs> um. So you are you're six seven. Correct. And so I'm sure you've been getting this question all your life do you play basketball <laughs> so um i worked up an excellent answer to this question which i don't actually use on people i just tell them the story so the story goes like this hey you're really tall you must play basketball to which i respond hey you're really short you must play miniature golf <laughs> fair very fair i've got but a couple i don't, I don't use that zinger on people i just tell them the story because then we can laugh about it together, right, right right it's yeah it's a you know a, a, you know a little uh circuitous yeah uh so uh, i've got a couple of friends who are like six five and people all the time are saying to them basketball 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 and they're like that's not my thing like just because i am you know over right around six they're shorter than you are but uh yeah that the, that's the presumption yeah that apparently there's a certain degree of athletic skill coordination passing shooting all of that that goes into basketball it's not just the height Yes, but you do have a reach advantage. So are there some other I sports do. that... I played tennis for a long time, and my my serve would have been great if I was more coordinated at the time. Uh, I am. I also do fencing, and I do boxing, and I'm potentially devastating at those because of the reach advantage. I mean, I would think, yes, yes, I, I will never box with you. 
<laughs> it's probably for the best. <laughs> well, if you ever do, well. you want to get inside the guard. Yes. Hold your, yeah. Get you know, and <laughs> body yes. shots. Yes. That's that's the ticket. Yes. Uh, and have you done fencing? I, I took a fencing class one time. It was really, really cool to learn just the basic footwork so that I can stand and pose like I know what I'm doing. But uh, it, it is quite demanding. It's, there's a I lot. have done some fencing. I, I call myself a novice fencer, though. I'm not particularly great. I've been in one tournament and I came in like third or fourth or something. That's not um, chatty. It's not too bad. But my the bane of my existence as a fencer are short left-handed fencers. Ah. Because it's always hard when you're a, when you're a dominant right-hander. Um, going against the lefty because lefties spend their entire fencing careers fencing right-handed people right and right-handed fencers spend their entire careers fencing right-handed people so lefties have a major advantage there plus yeah. when they're really small and they can just get inside your guard and just poke 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 poke, poke. yeah yeah and you're you've, you're going i've got this huge uh you know uh sweeping range but it all it takes me longer to get this arm to where i <laughs> right you gotta like kind of like pull your arm back in order to yeah yeah the uh my chief nemesis when i was in college doing fencing was like this 12 year old boy who would show up to uh um community class and just wipe the floor with me and it was hilarious well there's probably also a measure of you know that that 12 year old boy phenomena of i i'm i'm willing to you know jump inside your guard because i haven't learned yet that i shouldn't do those things like there's the culture you know this enculturation of stand back be very strategic, prepare. And he's like, no, I'm 12. I'm just going to run right up into your face. <laughs> I have not yet learned that man is mortal. <laughs> right? Yes, yes, it is. My son and I were in a, 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 a talent show competition one time and there we got to the last round and it was in this auditorium of 500 people or whatever. And uh, the, the report, uh, reporter asked him afterwards, were you, you know, at all scared being up in front of 500 people? And he was totally flummoxed he was like no what why would i be like he had no <laughs> sense of oh that should be intimidating you know and then junior high and high school take care of that <laughs> you know but, generally but, speaking yeah yeah, yeah and now he would be very nervous but at the time no he was totally fine <laughs> um so uh you are a prolific writer but shows all about procrastination what takes you away from your writing so in lately what ha, what pop culture thing has been taking you away from your writing well i'm sure this isn't going to come as a big surprise to a lot of people but i have been playing Baldur's gate 3 a lot and uh just last night i was up until midnight playing with some friends of mine who live in tennessee so that means they were up until 2 a.m yeah and we're playing multiplayer and there's something really funny about Baldur's Gate 3 multiplayer, particularly when some people get in very dour, serious conversations and one person's just running around in the back, just hoovering up everything. The... Like I'm picking up all the mugs and all of the plates and and the character's like, we're talking with Raphael here about matters of life and death and eternal damnation. And uh, meanwhile, you're just stealing everything from the bar. That's in the background there's this great clip i'm trying to remember the guy's name uh leroy jenkins you're the leroy yeah yeah <laughs> just, I'm just, I'm just, i've got other stuff to do here <laughs> well my character's a rogue assassin so that's what i have to do i have yeah. to charge right in and attack immediately and uh you could pull off some pretty amazing things as an assassin in that game just start and then once leroy jenkins once you fire off your first barrage then you're like 
uh-oh, what do I do? <laughs> yeah, I've got to get back to the tanks now as fast as I can. Tanks and healers, please. Um, That's right. So is that one available on, uh, I'm, I'm uh, we're an Xbox household. Is that one still just on PC or is it on Xbox yet? Okay, so it is on PC and on PlayStation 5. I think you can also play it on PlayStation 4, but I'm not sure I'd recommend that. Uh, and then it is coming to Xbox sometime in the next couple months, as far oh. as I understand it. it has yeah, it's totally worth it. Very yeah. entertaining. It will make you procrastinate many, many hours. Well, man, those are the kinds of things where I'm, so I'm you know, full-time school teacher. And so what I have to do is mm. wait and buy them like at the beginning of a break. Like, because mm. I know myself and I would go, oh, sorry, I can't come into work for the next three days, <laughs> which is not really an option as a teacher. So yeah, I'll, I, I intentionally will go, this is my reward. The school year has ended I or, you know, spring break or whatever. I am getting Baldur's Gate 3 and I'm doing nothing but sitting here and eating Cheetos and, you know, drinking caffeinated beverages for the next few days. Uh, Obviously, the best analogy to describe what Baldur's Gate 3 is like is that it's like a 5e Dungeons & Dragons game, right? Yeah. But if you're not really a Dungeons & Dragons player or, you know, you haven't played 5e very much, what I describe it as is being like Dragon Age with a certain amount of Final Fantasy tactics mentality. Mm. So how do the do the mechanics actually involve like roles? They do, in fact. Like when you're doing skill checks, a die will appear on the screen and will tell you what the DC is. And then you hit the hit enter and you can add bonuses, right? This is so you can stack on those like guidance and uh and potentially swig a potion real fast because it's gonna be a hard DC. And um then it, it you push the button and it actually rolls the die and you come up with a result and then it will add the bonuses in it. So it's like the game kind of teaches you how 5e works on sub level. But it is live in terms of the time, right? I mean, you don't have the flexibility to go, let me think about that. Like you, you, well, you do actually, it's a, um, it's a turn-based game. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Good. Um, turns can go very quickly though. Like you can have a very clear yeah. sense of I'm going to run up and attack this guy, um, but you can take as long as you want going through spells and stuff. That's, there is a, that's a what certain I mean. amount. Yes, there is a certain amount of jank in that things only become turn based when people are involved in the combat. So if there's someone else who's not yet up to where the enemies are, or the enemies haven't seen them yet, they're not involved in the combat yet. So you can switch to that character and keep creeping around while everyone's standing there like we're in fighting. Or sometimes enemies will just be patrolling around and happen across you while you're in the middle of this battle. And then yeah. they will join the combat. But as soon as you like get close enough to be involved, you roll initiative and then you're in the turn-based system. Yeah, uh, Mass Effect 2 had this uh, uh, mechanic where you could you know, pa- essentially pause and think and use the wheel to figure out, okay, what is going to be my next move? And boy, yep. did I abuse that. I was like, oh, yeah. I need to think about this. How, what's the best strategy for taking on five people and I'm crouched here, you know? You've uh, hit on another one of my fandoms. I'm a major Mass Effect uh, fan. Okay. <laughs> I played all of those games. I, I platinumed Mass Effect 2, for instance, okay? And I am not a first-person shooter kind of player. Like, that's not my style of gaming. I just love that game that much. Yeah. And I practice. I mean, this is a a highly debatable topic, but what did you think of the ending of three? 
You know, by the time, okay, I was a slightly latecomer to Mass Effect 3, uh, Mass Effect as a whole series. By the time I started playing it, all of the games had come out. Okay. So when I got to Mass Effect 3 and I got to the ending, like it had already had the patched extended version. The yeah. Ending. And so I found that okay. Yeah. Like it didn't bother me. Yeah. If I had been there uh, on launch day, and within the first week got to the redacted shortened ending, I probably would have been annoyed. But my theory on the endings is that the change that you're making in the, in the game isn't really to the universe itself. Like the universe is going to take a certain number of discrete paths. The change that you make is to you as a person that, you know, as you're playing mass effect, you are altering your character. You're building your character your shepherd and you're also changing yourself and your own perspective yeah so yeah. that's for, what i got for, out of the game for folks who've never played this game series you get to the end and there's a in the original ending there's i was about to say a bit of but really very much a deus ex machina it was all a dream kind of twist and your character has been you have to make a choice about who you are but it invalidates some of the choices you've made in the actual universe. And as a writer, that is a pet peeve of mine when a writer says, and it was all a dream. Or I, yeah, I don't know if you've seen the, the new Flash movie, which you know, <laughs> I, you know, I'm incredibly yeah. irritated by time travel stories in general. As soon as somebody goes, the solution is time travel. I'm like, no, don't You're do like, this author. Hold on. That way lies it. madness. Don't do yeah. this. What, we're going to get out whiteboards. Like this is going to be bad. And pretty soon your reader's going to be going, but why didn't they just go back three seconds earlier and solve the problem in another way? You've right. undermined the stakes. And so when I got to that ending, I was like, oh no, they got stuck. They couldn't think of how to end it. And so they went with this Deus Ex Machina ending. And it was, you know, that as, as writers, we just are like, I have fallen into that trap before. Don't do that. <laughs> you know, well, when, when you're trying to end a role-playing game, right? Especially a role-playing game with an immersive story that could go so many different ways and you can alter things in, in numerous ways. Like you have, a, you have a problems when you come to the ending. Yeah. You, know, you can create lots and lots of endings, lots and lots of permutations of an ending, which is what Baldur's Gate 3 does. Or you can try and kind of funnel everything down to just a couple of paths, which is what Mass Effect does. Yeah. And Mass Effect, you know, from the beginning was very much a like we're on rails, but the rails are under a thin layer of sand, yeah. right? And it seems like we're making a big difference, but when you replay the game and you're like, I'm going to make different choices, and you still pretty much end up in the same way. Yeah, yeah there fine. are really significant choices, and you don't know that they're that significant the first time you make them. And then when you're replaying, you're like, that was the, the one that's going to matter later. So yeah, that, that's right. that is a limitation. Which is why, you know, what I have to take from it is how it affected me and my perspective rather than how it affected the universe itself. Yeah, which really, I mean, that's that that is my beef with The Flash. You know, the, mm -hmm. the movie Flash, you get to the end of the movie and it has only been a significant story for one character. You know, <laughs> this didn't matter to anyone else. And I was like, you have wasted two hours <laughs> of my time. I didn't care enough about this character to, you know, want to follow him on his psychological journey. Like... Yeah, uh, but, you know, yeah. Mass Effect does that better. I cared more about that fictional character than I cared about the Flash. Um, so uh, uh, outside of those games, what is a news story that has been pulling you away from your writing lately? Oh my gosh, Benjamin! <laughs> right. 
Okay, I, I I like to think of myself as pretty in touch with what's going on in the world, which is a blessing and a curse. Yes. Like, there's so much terrible stuff going on in the world. You know, the ongoing violence in Gaza, um, the glacial pace of our own American justice system. Uh, you know, I, I keep seeing these, these news stories of Trump does this ridiculous thing. Trump did that ridiculous thing. Trump said this ridiculous thing that should be a violation of his of his agreement. And I'm like, yeah, is something going to happen? No. No, uh, not, not, to, not to wealthy white men. Like, he, you know, right. and that is so frustrating to watch and go, if right. this were anyone who was not a very wealthy white man, this would be a very different outcome right now. And I mean, I, I feel like I feel like we're just kind of like slowly expected to just forget about things the war in ukraine still going on months and months later yeah. has that been going on for a year now i think so and yeah we don't i mean it's this is an invasion like if you know if, right. if our country were invaded it would be all we would be thinking about and we're supposed to go oh well you know that that is old news and for a while, we were like, yeah, the Ukrainians are putting up a really good fight and they're kicking Russia's ass. Wow, this is amazing. Uh, it's going to be over soon. Uh, yeah, that was like six months ago. Yeah. And once <laughs> and it became really even... entrenched, it was boring yeah, to us. Exactly. You know, and we just move on to the next interesting thing. And it's yeah. just, it's unsettling is what yeah. it is. And at the same time, I have to, uh, you know, step back and, and realize as we debate things like aid, like one of the things that I think Americans don't think enough about and, and we should kind of reflect on is if we spend you know x number of billions of dollars on aid to israel aid to ukraine the money doesn't go into a bank account in ukraine we are purchasing weapons systems in the united states from companies in the u.s and sending weapons and so there there is a kind of moral we should feel a little uncomfortable about the fact that we you know say we give aid throughout the world we give guns like we are a great gun manufacturing society and yeah, i'm not I mean, super comfortable yeah. with arming all of these conflicts either <laughs> you know yeah i um i tend to side on the side of peace and diplomacy yeah. and negotiation as the best solution for things it doesn't always work obviously but like but neither does war and violence so yeah, why do we that, predispose to purely... one thing that often does not work you know yeah. yeah i don't have the solution to all these problems no. i wish i did i wish i could just make skill checks and it would solve everything yeah. which is one reason why gaming is so fun yes it is uh it's it's a little more controlled and predictable and yeah and better written i mean that's I one of the things i keep coming back to is this universe is poorly written it is poorly yeah. poorly uh gm'd so yeah uh this clearly needed a few more editing passes maybe yeah. a development edit would have been good However, uh, it's possible that we are in the darkest timeline. Yes. So. Yep. Uh, however, the uh, George Santos story has been. That is true. That is true. Sometimes positive things happen. <laughs> that guy got expelled from the house. I was like, there's no way this is going to happen. And it did. And I, I'm like, wow, amazing. And in a way, I feel like the Dems did the Republicans a favor by participating in that. Like it was such a great news story for, you know, for for everyone. It was so entertaining to have him still there. And I was like, if the Republicans can't figure out how to expel this guy, then the entertainment factor is is uh, is pretty remarkable. But, you know, I, I suppose we should care about things, you know, legislation more than entertainment. But he was very entertaining. <laughs> I suppose so. I want to say two things about that. 
one, George Santos, not a rich white guy. Right. So let's yeah. let's keep that in mind. If he were a rich white guy, Matt Gates, for instance, exactly he'd still be there. And Matt Gates still is there, even though that guy is just as much of a buffoon oh, yeah. as George Santos. He's just maybe a little less obvious about it. A little less. Yeah. Well, I have thought about the fact that, you know, the the kind of our the the foils that that the you know the I, I was gonna say like liberal America, but most of America loves to pick on are Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. Uh yes. It's the only people who end up going down for all of Trump's stuff are two women. That should tell us something. Like we low didn't charisma bar on, characters, you know. yeah. Yeah. The you know, it's also a lesson to the pickmies. Like, you know, hey, pick me, pick me. You will be the first to go down. Like, you know, these people will not yeah. go down for you. It's like there's this concept called a quizzling. That's a person who sides with the fascists, thinking that the fascists aren't going to crush them. Like, oh, I never imagined that the the <laughs> leopards eating faces uh representative would eat my face. Yeah. But like, what? And I'm like, come on, people. Like yeah. stop, stop working, not, not just voting against your own interests, working against your own interests. Yeah. And for people who will not side with you, like they will not, you know, these folks will not sacrifice for you the way you are sacrificing for them. That should right. tell you something, but yeah it, yeah, it is hard to watch and go, yes, you know, the, 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 the quizlings can be incredibly annoying and, and their behavior can just be repulsive. And then I also think, but they shouldn't be the only ones to go down. Right. <laughs> like this is, you know. Right. Yeah, I've, I've been, I've been kind of watching who, who are we making fun of the most? And uh, it is, you know, yeah, it does tend to it be. It is them. Yeah. It is the, the living straw people that, yep. <laughs> that the GOP puts in front of us. And and they choose that. Like I, they should be held accountable for choosing. I am going to be the person who, you know, yeah. defends. And at the same time, like they should not be the only ones held accountable. And so. Well, and a certain amount of that is grifting, right? Yep. A certain amount of that is like, I can convince uh, people on the right that they're not that terrible because, hey, I'm a woman and I'm yes. on your side or I'm a non-white person. See, you're not, they're not homophobic. You like Send this me money. Person. Yeah. And they're just um, looking for that golden parachute. Yeah. Which and so a lot of them look get. at that from the outside and we're like, this is, it's so appalling to me that this person would be betraying their own community. Th then we are, are kind of agreeing with the right that this community gets targeted, right? You know, then that. Right. It's grotesque yeah that's what it is so i am glad santos is gone though Fuck. yeah well, and, uh, and if i mean he is you know he's a grifter he wants to stay in in the the public eye and so he's gonna choose one of two paths we're gonna get to watch in real time as he makes this choice does he decide to be the far-right newsmax guy who says you know, all the Republicans are too liberal and he's the, the furthest right. Or does right. he decide to go the way for me to make some money is to, you know, be on MSNBC revealing things about my Republican colleagues and be the, you know, the, the new darling of the left. Uh, and I don't know that, you know, I mean, he's going to make my guess is a financial calculation, <laughs> you yes, know, which no one doubt. of those pays better. Uh, but he might get a lot of attention uh, for being the person who calls out the, the you know, the, his his former colleagues. And that could be very entertaining. So we'll, we'll see. Or he might flame out and, and, you know, come to nothing. Yes. That's always exactly. possible. Disappear. I mean, and he could also end up in jail and it's hard to be entertaining when you're in a cell. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. True. <laughs> you know what true. happens to him. I would not mind a few people being in jail. 
held accountable. It would be remarkable. Yeah. I mean, well, and that's the other thing is, you know, our, our justice system is, you know, throw them away, you know, and, uh, and, and lock them up, throw away the key for these ridiculous sentences that don't do anyone any good. And we all pay for it. But right. a short sentence gets people out of the limelight. Like if they just want attention and you take a George Santos and you, you know, put him away for three years or whatever for all of his financial crimes, he disappears. Uh, and that would be enough to make people think twice about grifting. <laughs> like, yeah that would that would be nice we'll we'll see uh so uh outside of the news (laughs) we're not getting ourselves sinking into a terrible depression about things we cannot change uh what is something else you're doing when you're not writing well as i mentioned i'm a gamer i am you know in like six to ten different tabletop campaigns at any given time just some of which i'm running not all of them uh Let's see. I was running D&D yesterday. I'm supposed to run Star Wars tomorrow. Uh, I I do stuff on this Twitch channel called Dungeon Scrawlers. We're a bunch of writers who get together and uh, play d I have watched. Basically. It is fun. Yes. And yeah. I, I ran a Forgotten Realms game for uh, my group there for about three years. And as we were doing that, we were starting to do other shows. And right now we're mostly um, mostly other shows that are not directly related to that although we do have a pseudo sequel that is going on and nearing the conclusion uh, called fearful symmetry which is run by Erin m evans who you should also have on the show at some point if we ah. can make that happened she is awesome um where the characters mostly are facing um other versions of themselves from other timelines and universes interesting uh, in which like different choices were made and it's yeah. it's very interesting so yeah highly recommended uh links down below i'm sure oh yeah yeah we'll put it in the show notes so uh the when you're dming what is kind of the 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 time balance how much time do you invest you know before a particular game session it just seems i've never dm'd it seems overwhelming to me (laughs) all right so here's my big secret my gming style is almost entirely improvisational it is almost entirely based on what the players are bringing to it and um, the consequences of their actions. I come up with a, a setting or scenario, or if I have a module, I might pull out like a, a area where that is. And then I have, I, I ask myself, okay, what would it be like with these characters in it? Like uh, what decisions are they going to make? And then after a session, I say, okay, how did they influence things? What should logically happen next? So I plan session to session. I do have an overall plan, like kind of like, this is where I'd like to get with this campaign, but I don't know exactly how, and yeah. I don't know the, the order of things, and I don't know exactly who they're going to meet. So I just have a big cast of potential characters in my head that I pull out. Um, I have notes. I occasionally build monsters when I want there to be a really cool fight. Um, yeah, some of my, back in the fourth edition days the the edition that need not speak its name yeah i ran a series of encounters they weren't really campaigns or adventures they were just encounters called god slayers and uh, one of my friends reminded me of this the other day where i tasked uh, the players with creating 30th level characters and then i would create a huge monster like or I, I would take one of the powerful enemies that is in the book. Like, um, I think they fought Orcus and Dagon at the same time. 
or it was um, Demogorgon and Dagon. I think it was Demogorgon and Dagon at the same time, the same and, time. along with a bunch of other demons. And then the next, um, I also did Orcus the first time. Uh, Jeremy Crawford was actually one of the players in that game, and he wrecked Orcus. Like, he he was playing a paladin. He went up, he Nova'd, and took out Orcus in, like, one and a half rounds. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, my third one, I, I learned my lesson, which was the 30th level characters in that game were extremely powerful. Yeah. And they were always going to be able to match whatever I threw at them that was just in the in the box in the in the books so i started making my own monsters i i took a shardalon who was a powerful red dragon epic 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 red dragon and just made him super extra powerful i called that monster empowered a shardalon he has like a cr of 40 and then i put him with six balors who i gave sword mage abilities to and i had the fight be on a on a volcano top where the volcano is erupting. Several of my players got really upset that Ashardalon apparently had Lava Walk. They're like, Lava Walk is not a thing. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. it is when I want it to be. Yes. And um, that particular encounter ran into the problem that 4th E often does, which is that the combat just took too long. Like we gave up six hours in and they had just bloodied the dragon. Yeah. None of them were down. I think I had taken one down uh, mostly, but he popped back up with some epic ability that gave him the power of a full rest or something. And I was just like, all right, this is silly. This is crazy. So I built a couple more monsters, but I, I never actually got the chance to use them. Fifth edition came out. That's what people wanted to play. And I think fifth is pretty good. So yeah. the other monsters, Omega Tarask, uh, named after the Omega weapon from the Final Fantasy series. Yeah. And I built... Uh, a stat block for the Raven Queen. Interesting. So actually fighting the goddess of death. Yeah. So yeah. And, but nobody's, nobody's had a chance to do that one yet. No one's had a chance to do that one yet. Yes. That it would be interesting to see if you win, if you defeat death. I mean, put that in a campaign. What are the consequences afterwards? There's right. No death. <laughs> that would be that would be interesting. Okay, we we won the, the you know stage one of the campaign, and the rest of the campaign is how do we resurrect her? Because it turns out death is pretty important. <laughs> like follow up campaigns can be really fun in that regard when you're just dealing with the consequences of what happened in the first campaign. Yeah. Especially if it's something ridiculous like that. Oh, we broke the multiverse and this particular way and then following up you're like well there were these awful villains who broke the multiverse and you have to go and fix it <laughs> yeah well i mean i i mean to some extent that is what has happened to the mcu like hey mm -hmm. we we decided to bring time travel and a multiverse into it now how are we going to create a loki television series to try and undo that choice <laughs> because it's getting a little rangy uh mm -hmm. so yeah i mean mm -hmm. yeah that uh, marvel phase whatever we're in is that you know, is is making up for choices that were made in the next game. Trying to do surgery rather than yeah. just reboot everything, which is what comic universes inevitably do. Yes. If we've seen anything from Marvel and DC in the past. Well, and like, I think, I think uh, DC has rebooted what six times or something? Yeah. yeah. Marvel and has well, rebooted a couple times. Yeah. And the, the the trick they're running into is how do we reboot and keep some of our stars? Like we want to keep some people because these these people are big draws. 
But I think this choice to go, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody who's not seen it, but the Loki TV show is essentially a reboot. Like now we're in the Loki verse and, mm. you know, and, and that's supposed to solve that problem. And, and we'll see how well it does. But but <laughs> but like the, the Marvels uh, movie, the Marvels isn't in the Loki verse yet. So we'll, we'll see, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of very smart people, but are they communicating with one another in the writing of all these? We'll, we'll it's certainly out. an interesting thing to discuss and theorize about. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very nerdy. Oh my Yes. Gosh. They've got us nerds talking about it. So it's worked. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, and I never want to become like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a star Wars fan and I'm very critical of star Wars fans who at every phase are saying, this is the worst. This is so, you know, and, and they're not able to step back and go, Oh wait, to what extent is my nostalgia playing into my, you know, my own choices. And I found this, and my son is a huge star Wars fan too. And so he's that, you know, two generations of star Wars later, you know, fan. Mm-hmm. So he's going, Oh, the, the rebels cartoon is the thing I'm nostalgic about. And I'm going, Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, episode four is what I'm nostalgic about. And I found this article uh, that was the explanation in a fanzine from like 1982 uh, explaining why they were no longer going to be continuing to produce this fanzine because they were so angry at the Empire Strikes Back. Right. The Empire Strikes Back had ruined Star Wars and it was like you were reading descriptions of uh, uh, Force Awakens. Like it was the exact same criticisms that I was exactly. Star Wars fans yeah. have always been the same. This new thing is always bad. You know? Empire Strikes Back is is much beloved now. Yeah. But we, we don't remember because, you know, some of us were either really young or not even alive yet yeah. that Empire Strikes Back was hugely controversial. Yep. Yep. Because Star Wars fans are Star Wars fans. They exactly. Always... <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and one insight that I heard um, on, a, on a review once about the prequels. There are a lot of people, especially today, who look back on the prequels and say, those were really good. Like, that is what Star Wars is supposed to be, the prequels. And those of us who saw the prequels in the theaters uh, as young adults were like, wait, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> like, how how do you look back on these movies and go, no, these were really good. Like, this this was peak Star Wars. Yeah, and and the reason is it's that nostalgia thing. Yeah. Like that's the Star Wars you if you if that's the Star Wars you grow up with, that's what Star Wars is to you. Yeah, I mean, and everything else say, is kind of grandfathered in, right? right. Like the stuff that came have to before. Say as they enter into those debates. By the way, I was this age when I experienced this because that's the most salient fact. Like, oh, by the way, I was nine. Yep, that's why you love it, and that's yeah. okay. That's great. You know, that that's, was when that's that totally fine. You. That's what it's for, yeah. right? Yeah. Star Wars is first is supposed to be for everybody. Yeah, and yeah. You, but you're able to you connect know, with it at any as a age. Middle-aged white guy going, I, "This isn't the Star Wars of my childhood." Well, you don't even re- you're not a child anyway. You are looking, you know, back and trying to remember how you felt, and you weren't analyzing those things critically when you were nine. <laughs> you were going, "This is." lightsabers and big explosions and i love it you know and we're always going to have that i mean i i you know can get really worked up about how much i hate the prequels and then i have to go oh yeah because i was the wrong age like you know if i'd been nine i would have loved them i think but i did get to see yoda fight which i was pretty excited about and i mean they have some great moments yeah Uh, the plot doesn't make a lot of sense but that's a that's a, a a star wars tradition 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the (laughs) the things we critique about the ones we don't like are also true of the ones we do like. I can't believe that they retconned in this one. Uh, Have you seen the original trilogy? They like does the 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 caper at the beginning return to the Jedi make any logical sense? Would anyone would anyone who makes anything like a plan come up with that plan? Right. No. No. And so I can't believe they had a a plan to go to you know this this uh, gambling planet that doesn't make any sense. It didn't. It wasn't relevant to the plot. Have you seen Return of the Jedi, like right, yes, you know, par for the course. I can't believe they retconned that this person was related to somebody and we didn't know they were related to them. Yeah, that's in the original too. Like that's mm. the way Star Wars works. It's uh, interesting. Yeah. We're talking about the the generations of Star Wars fans. Um, so on the Dungeon Scrollers, we recently did this um, four four session actual play of a Star Wars game called Quadrilateral. Uh, it's run not by me. I wasn't the GM. It was run by uh, J.L. Collins, Jason Collins, who is a, a writer and comic book person and a uh, very old friend of mine. We actually shared a TOC many years ago uh, in one of my, in one of the uh, Realms anthologies. Um, and uh, he is like us, you know, kind of middle-aged white guy, saw the original uh, Star Wars movies, uh, either in the theaters or very early uh, yeah. after they had initially come out. Um, and his version of Star Wars gaming is the West End Games D6 version. Mm. So that is the system that he played on this channel, but uh, on this game. But uh, the four primary characters, players who were in this game, they're all young people. They're like 20, early 20s, maybe late 20s. Uh, you know, very, very uh, young millennials or Zoomers. And they come with a, a different perspectives and different views on uh, what Star Wars is to them and uh, to what Jason has. And so just watching that all work together and flow together is a, a really rewarding and interesting experience. Um, a lot of his stuff for this particular adventure comes from Andor, and oh, yeah. Andor is a piece of Star Wars media that a lot of people can agree on is pretty good. Yeah, it's high quality. Like, like it has a little bit of Star Wars, Star Wars silliness, right? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's Star Wars silliness oh, yeah. in every Star Wars. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But not not a lot. It's generally pretty serious and it has a lot of important things to say. Well, and so, I'll the critique of it by folks who don't like it is that it's too serious. Like right. it is it's pretty heavy. Yeah. Yeah, it takes itself pretty seriously, and it's con- it's tackling some really heavy themes. Yeah, I mean, I love um, it, but I'm as an adult, I'm going. I don't know that a kid would enjoy Andor. Like, it's it's pretty heavy and slow at times. There isn't necessarily a lot there for a, a kid who is into you know space explosions, pew pew right. pew, that kind of Star Wars fandom, which is great. I mean, again, Star Wars is for right. everyone. It's supposed to have things for everyone. Um, the thing I find most remarkable about Andor is that Disney created it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, hey, uh, this series is pretty much against, you know, your <laughs> widespread capitalism and corporatization. Uh, but yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, I mean, it, it shows that Disney is willing to go, we'll try different paths and we'll see and we'll, you know, we'll slice up the audience and we'll find yeah. the thing that works for you. And and that one really, and also they're, they're, they're listening to the talent, which is nice. You know, they've had some yes. really good writers on that one who were willing to say, let's do something a little more uh, adult and, and 
somber. I mean, some of us. I know. I know it's the popular oh. thing to denigrate Disney and you know think of them as the evil corporate overlords, and and they are. And they are. Extent. It's fair. Sure. But like, <laughs> it's not all bad. Is right? what I'm saying. Like, yeah. there's there's some good stuff there, and they're making some good some good moves and good evolution, and um, I hope I see it continue. Well, it's like it's like criticizing capitalism itself. Like you run into the you know I, I don't like all the injustices of capitalism. But capitalism has produced some nice stuff. <laughs> Capitalism's good with stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's not always well, no, no ethical consumption under capitalism. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, we can always rail against um, our system uh, on our phones that uh, exactly are, as I say, <laughs> that are representative of that system. Capitalism is terrible as I drink my Mountain Dew and. And and we could go on and on about this. Uh, it is easier to uh, imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Yeah. Uh, and there are there are better systems and you know things we could do to edge ourselves away from it. But you know I don't necessarily want to get into my uh, leftist propaganda here on your <laughs> show. Yes. Oh no, I don't mind it a bit. But <laughs> we should. Uh, so the point of the show is not to uh, to propagandize our our, our leftist uh, politics, although. I enjoy that, but I want readers to get to know you. So one of the things I always ask folks is if you yourself, not a D&D character you want to play, but if you yourself were a character in D&D, what would be your race and class? Kind of as a Rorschach of, you know, who who people are reading when they're reading your work. So I actually have two answers to this, one of which I uh, I wrote down beforehand when I saw that you were going to ask this question. Uh, because like that Rorschach thing, it's just like first impulse answer and then a second answer. And so I'll give you the first one first. If I were suddenly a D&D character, I would be a tiefling, not your like big horns, devil looking tiefling, but like um, somewhat unsettling, somewhat sinister, pointed ears, a little too sharp teeth, um, maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit otherworldly, right? Um, one of my good friends, Erin Evans, who I mentioned before, she is like, um, the, uh, the wicked aunt of tieflings in the forgotten realms. Like she, she is the expert on tieflings in the forgotten realms. And she would be, well, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but she would be look, she would be giving my tiefling some side eye is what I'm saying. Like, uh, <laughs> as she sees it. Um, tieflings you know they have the horns and the devils because that's part of the brimstone angel series and which is all about how tieflings work and stuff. I mean, highly recommended definitely go read it you should have erin on your show because she is awesome ah. anyway my tiefling is different my tiefling is more of a uh, a second edition planes of chaos tiefling right um, what do you think that says about who you are as a person uh, I think it has something to do with my uh, interest in all things occult mm. and a little bit dark and a little bit um, not uh, shining good, you know, yeah. but still having a good heart and still trying to do my best and yeah. being a major smart ass um, most of the time. Um, and then in terms of class, I would be my favorite, uh, which is a rogue paladin. So, and that is uh, that, you know, doing good, but also, uh, you know, a little bit mischievous, you know. Right. Also, mechanically, it's great. Uh, rogues help out the paladin's lack of mobility, which is largely the main issue with paladins. Yeah. Like having that cunning action makes a huge difference to a paladin. And um, 
there's no reason you can't play a paladin with uh, light or medium armor. You don't have to be a shining knight in uh, shining armor. You can be a sneaky assassin paladin. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, uh, and um, you know, combining uh, sneak attack and smite can be uh, can work wonders. Yeah, so. but but I love that in you know in in the system these choices have consequences. If you're not wearing that heavy armor, there may be times you wish you were wearing heavy armor, and there it's will quite be times possible, when yeah. you are wearing the heavy armor and you are wishing you had light armor. So it it, it rewards this very real world phenomena of choices have consequences. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, so. You are that character. You're the tiefling okay. rogue paladin, and you are ambushed in the woods by three level one goblins. Excellent. The easiest. What do you do? Okay, so the first thing is that I probably have a high charisma because paladins need a high charisma. So I'm going to try and intimidate them to um, run away. If that doesn't work, however, I am going to attack suddenly while I'm in the middle of this speech. Uh, do a sneak attack and a smite to put down one of the goblins as hard as I possibly can. And that should do the trick of scaring them away. So first attempt to take care of it without killing anyone, then attempt to take care of it killing the fewest possible. Correct. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I appreciate that. Well, I, I suppose I could be doing non-lethal damage. I'm not sure yeah, if it maybe, lets maybe you do non-lethal damage with a smite stunned. and a sneak attack, but you know. Dr very dramatically stunned. <laughs> yes. All right. So my other answer to these this set of questions, um, on the Dungeon Scrollers, we have this uh, campaign called Isekai Realms, which is exactly what it sounds like. We, ourselves, like Eric Debye, Rhiannon Held, other people in the game, get sucked into the Forgotten Realms as ourselves, and the only thing we really have going for us is our meta-knowledge of the world. And so... Um, there's a certain amount of like pretending to know secrets or telling people secrets, which is a thing that you see in these kind of isekai anime shows, um, especially the dating based ones, the Atome game ones, where they're like, um, there's this character who's an obstacle in the game, but he has this dark secret. So I'll just go tell him the dark secret and then he'll be blackmailed and out of the way. Right. So it's that kind of feel. And in this game, I am currently a warrior, not even a fighter, just a warrior, aspiring to be a paladin, because we're using second edition rules uh, because that's what the DM knows. And uh, we started the game with this uh, strange sigil, like tattooed on our chests, and uh, it has magical powers. You can draw upon the mark in order to do something in the world. Uh, and on a on a dare, very early in the game, like I think session two or something, one of them said, well, do you think you can summon Vindicator with your mark? Vindicator being a, uh, a paladin knight sword in my Shadowbane series, like mm -hmm. it's the main weapon that my character has. And this is like 100 years before those take place, but the sword still exists. Uh, it's theoretically yeah. uh, the sword of uh, the god Helm, in fact. And I'm like, why not? Let's give it a shot. And the DM looks at me. He's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And he's like, okay, roll. And I rolled and I rolled a one. I think, I think I rolled a one. <laughs> and the thing is, when you're doing skill checks in second edition, you want to roll low because you want to roll under your ability that you're rolling. Oh, like that's, how, that's how those worked. 
and I, or at least that's those are the rules that he's playing with the second edition was a little you so know, flexible. one is a critical success correct oh okay so okay. sure enough i summon this you know burning holy sword with silvery fire and my mark goes away like i burned it all out to yeah. get this plus three uh holy smiting sword and so now uh i myself am running around the realms with this holy sword that i can summon or uh make dissipate when i want to and uh everyone else has still has their marks and still gives them magical powers um and uh it seems since i'm the dm on many of the dungeon scholars things that i would be the logical leader but that's not the case like i i should not be the leader i tend to make um impulsive decisions mm. in the game and they're not always for the best anyway i don't want to spoil it further isekai realms is really is really fun and you should definitely check it out that is um, really cool and and me, what do you think that i mean how does that the way that character has kind of manifested though that character is you what does that tell potential readers about you because I think that's an interesting, you know, the aspiring paladin with the way OP sword, you know, what, what does that tell? How would a reader see that in your work? Well, there's the thing that drives my character in the Isekai Realms game is responsibility. Um, because I feel like the meta story is that I talked this DM into running this for the dungeon scrawlers. So it's my fault that we're in this situation. Mm, you made so the point. I, I see it as my responsibility to get everyone out who wants to go home. Not everyone wants to go home. Uh, but those of us who do, I see it as my responsibility to make that happen. And as we go, we just acquire more and more things that we are responsible for. And so I am going through basically emulating this with great power comes great responsibility thing which is one of the key moral ethical tenets of most of my work. Yeah. Um, because it's something I strongly believe. Yeah. You know, I'm a geek. Uh, is it a surprise that some of my philosophy is based on Spider-Man? No, no. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, yeah, that, that, that is, that, that is our, our, our geek catechism. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if, if you that. have, if you have the power and privilege to help people, you have an obligation to do so. Yeah. That's just how, morality works yeah you know um i you know i it can manifest in things as uh small as i'm a big tall person a big tall guy um i will walk people to their car yeah you know yeah. uh or it could it could be i make a decent living with my day job i give money to charity or it could be i have the power to vote i vote for the non-fascist yes you know? Um, and, and and the inverse is how we understand villainy in you know in, and and we're trained to by our marvel comics right the person right. has an incredible amount of power and doesn't use it to help others uses it to harm others is the villain uh and boy do we see that in our world like that is how i identify villains it's not oh this person you know who is downtrodden and abused made a bad choice it's this person who had so much power so much ability to help instead chose to cause harm that's the supervillain, you know yeah. and that's that's a pretty clear-cut uh way of looking at you know what a villain is the problem and this is the this is the caveat is that we get into the um 
into the sense of villains are sometimes coded in comics and in movies as people who want to change the system. Like that's primarily what they want to do is that they want to disrupt. They want to disrupt capitalism. It's the conservatism of the kind of villain, you know, is that they want to, these are the people who want to cause change and good people want to preserve the status quo. Poison Ivy wants to thwart, uh, you know, the corporate lobbyists that are destroying the rainforest and she's a villain. Right. Right. Because she's an eco terrorist or because she poisons people with her kisses or something. But in real life, like the people that she's opposing, they are the bad guys. Yeah. I she's just going students. about doing things in a in a dark, evil sort of way. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. No, I, I tell my students, you know, Shakespeare is inherently conservative. The the play resolves when the status quo has been reestablished or yes. If it is tragic, it's tragic because the status quo couldn't be reestablished. And that, that you know, we should be really critical as we're reading it and recognize this was somebody who was selling tickets and needed to make sure that the powers that be were happy and was reinforcing the idea that however things are is the way they ought to be. And that exactly. is problematic in and of itself. So, yeah. I mean, we talk about conserving things under conservatism. What is conservatism conserving? Yeah. It's conserving power and privilege and prestige and hierarchy and yeah it was a it was originally coming out um like the the founding thinkers of conservatism burke de maestra people like that were coming up with these concepts around the time of the french revolution when people were upsetting the established hierarchy and they were looking for ways to justify keeping that hierarchy in place ways that did not involve the divine right of kings so yeah. instead they went with money mostly yeah yeah and i i value the input of true conservatives in saying slow down let's think about this i think we need those people we need people who will say yes. let's slow down and be thoughtful that is not what modern conservatism has become where it is right. you know dogmatic about the, the the hierarchy that i was raised with we just need to return to that and then that will be everything will be great like that's yeah. not that that's not the the social value that conservatism really could have conservatism should lose and progressivism should lose in that it should be slowed so that we are thoughtful about the changes that we make uh and that would be a really healthy tension and compromise but yeah, we are we not we should make progress yeah we, we should make progress, make progress logically yeah. and sustainably so that we don't end up slipping back into a you know right-wing counter yeah um and as you and you brought this up it's important to have that kind of restraining force someone to say okay let's make sure we can pay for this yeah right um that doesn't have to be the gop though no it doesn't have no. to be conservatives that yeah. can be democrats a moderate or yeah, a center-right party Democrat. yep they really are a center-right party. And yeah, that is, uh, you know, somebody anyway, saying- I'm not a Democrat. I just want to make that clear. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, and I, you know, I, I am pretty far to the left on the for the Dems, but I value the folks who are shifting the Overton window to the left because the Democratic Party is a, a center-right party. And at or the at same least time, trying to pull the Overton window yeah. back so that it doesn't keep going to the right, right which it right. has for decades well and it's because in you know the alternatives are so abominable 
that were willing to go, okay, well, I'll take center right over, you know, authoritarianism. And <laughs> and so we're not uh, presented with uh, options that, uh, we, you know, we can tolerate. We end up getting the lesser intolerable. Right. Uh, and when you are placed in a situation where your choices are profound evil and ugh, like yeah. you were morally obligated to choose the uh option hold your nose be a grown-up like it's hard <laughs> like I, I you know i've got a lot of my friends are former students they're in their you know 20s now and they're going i am so sick of being forced to make these choices i don't like and i'm like yeah i know it sucks yeah we're, we're grown-ups we have you know if you have the privilege to to say I you know I get to decide use that privilege to not cause this extreme harm and then yeah build a farm team and create a third option I think that's lovely but please don't say well I would I would face the least consequences from a burn it down so let's burn it down like that is selfish but that that's right. hard for folks to you know yeah. and I and I would not have wanted to hear that from an old me when I was in my twenties either <laughs> right. and building up that. Uh sustainable leftist uh party takes a lot of work and it yep. takes work from the ground up yeah and you don't it, start with a presidential election you start right. with your local mayor's race and your city council and your you know your local legislature and that's yes. that that's hard that that kind of patience is also hard if you're 25 you know yeah, and you're I, going this is going to take decades yeah it takes decades to build a political party <laughs> this is not my, easy. My fellow leftists and progressives often get frustrated with how I see things because it it is it incrementalist kind of yeah but yeah that's that's how progress gets made and it's it's really frustrating and I share everyone's frustration yeah. I just I've been around too long to see to to believe in this kind of like maybe this time just miraculously everybody will vote for Bernie or somebody like right. Bernie I'm like no that's, that's not funny. how it works people are gonna people are. I don't want to say selfish. I don't want to say self-centered, but a lot of people's um, view is narrow. It's limited to their life and the people around them because it has to be right because people are working hard to survive, to make money and to, you know, I could go on about this yeah. again, left is propagandizing, but the point is try and be patient with people. It's yeah. not always easy but it is important. And it's um, okay to validate that frustration. Like I understand why folks on the left are very frustrated. I absolutely. share your frustration, but I also, I, I'll say to folks sometimes, which would you rather have? Would you rather get things done or be right? Because sometimes you can be right to no effect or, or worse in a way that causes harm. So sometimes you got to go, oh, I'm going to do this thing that I'm not super comfortable with because it gets makes progress. And that is a really hard thing to do. And I want to validate that that is hard and that compromising, you know, feels gross. One of one of humanity's primary weaknesses as a species is our ability to see into the future and predict the consequences of our actions. Uh, long-term thinking is not really our thing especially you know when we're when we're beaten down under the crushing boot of capitalism yeah well, and racism and other bigotries which all serve that same hydra yeah. of oppression yeah and it, i mean it is the, the, i know this sounds ageist but it's also biological like it is a function of age that the younger we are the more impulsive we are an infant must be fed right now and a teenager can think about Friday night and, you know, and, and a, an old person goes, am I going to go out today? 
let me think about it for three days. No, I don't think I will. Like, yeah. and so there is a healthy place in between to say we need to think this through and make these choices. And that's hard, regardless of your age. It is, it is very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to go to our commercial. Oh, I, I, I want to say one more thing oh, go for on this topic, and then we'll go to the commercial break. Um, so another nerd uh, topic, The Witcher, right? I'm a big fan of the books. I also watched the show. The show is very different from the books, but it's it still is. entertaining to me. I yeah. don't know. It's silly. You know, it's it's it's, it's dumb. It's fine. Some, some of the acting is good and some is so terrible. And it's like, are we watching, are we watching the same show? Are you on the same right. show? Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. But um, one of the topics that people constantly bring up is this thing that Geralt says in the first episode or the first story, if you read the books, uh, which is you know uh evil is evil and if i have to choose between uh a greater evil or a lesser evil i prefer not to choose at all right and some people take that as like the thesis statement of the witcher series like it is better to be an uninvolved centrist who is just you know morally right and doesn't doesn't choose like doesn't play that game but the thing is if you watch that that episode or you read that story that goes really poorly for Geralt (laughs) that is his central character flaw is that he is so disengaged that's what he needs to overcome over the course of the story it's watching this text and somebody saying I I really admire that about him and you're like you are not getting it (laughs) (laughs) and and by not choosing he always choose by not choosing he supports the greater evil every time that yep. is what happens when you refuse to take sides or you refuse to make a choice. The greater evil always wins. Yeah. We saw that in 2016. We're seeing that in further elections. Although at this point, it does seem that, you know, the tide is slightly turning against the regressive anti-democratic F, um, hours in America. And I, I take a little bit of hope in that, you know, people of our age, range are less conservative than our parents used to be yeah like that used to be the wisdom that as you age you're going to become more conservative yeah no <laughs> no nope. not in not not in many cases yeah so. in so many ways i am so more liberal than i was in my 20s when i was still going oh here's all this baggage that i refuse to unpack you know right. and, and you right. know, going through i mean one of the things is we're willing to go to therapy <laughs> <laughs> we're willing to such work. A big oh, difference. i've got this stuff that i need to work through you know uh but yeah that please, is uh viewers please go to therapy if you can <laughs> it's always a good thing yeah. even if you don't think you need it it's still very helpful yeah and, and i understand that there are barriers and it is expensive and it is difficult absolutely if you can get in therapy go to therapy before it's a crisis <laughs> don't wait yes. until you must go to therapy go to therapy preventatively it's really wonderful if you have the opportunity so definitely um, all right recommend okay so we're gonna go to our ad break uh but when we come back from our ad break i'm gonna ask you what you've been daydreaming about lately hi i'm karen eisenbray and i wear a lot of hats wife mother church lady writer editor punk rock drummer I gave all my hats to Barbara, the main character of The Gospel According to St. Rage and Barbara and the Rage Brigade. Barbara isn't your typical high school junior. She's been invisible since the third grade. 
But when a magic hat brings her back into the light, Barbara is ready to take on the world. First priority, start an all-girl garage band. Miraculous superpowers were never in her plan, but sometimes you get what you need. Bullies and school shooters don't stand a chance. Truth, justice, rock and roll. So Eric, what have you been daydreaming about lately? Ah, uh, let's see. Okay, so over the last few years, during the pandemic, slightly before the pandemic, since 2016, essentially, I would frequently have dreams and recurring thoughts about a death note falling from the sky. So for those for those who have not, this is the manga, right? This is the the show. The manga and the on it. Tell folks about that because I had to look this up. I did not know this manga, but this is an interesting story. So, Death Note, and as the anime, okay, it's anime has a reputation for doing really edgy things and being really edgy. Well, Death Note is very very edgy. So I, you know, if if you start watching it and you don't, it doesn't work for you. That's totally fine. But the basic concept is. This um, young man, teenager, I think he's in high school, he's 16 or 17. He gets a notebook, which is dropped by a uh, god of death. And whenever you write someone's name in the notebook, they will die within about a minute. And there are other rules, like you can write down um, someone's name and the manner of their death, and then that will happen. And so you can, um, and you can also put in time delays and say like, this person dies on such and such date at this time, et cetera. And he gets this book and he's a generally pretty good aligned, very, I, w- I want to say more lawful aligned sort of person than a good aligned person. Uh, and his good goes away pretty quickly. Um, he gets this power and he says, you know what? I'm going to make the world better. I'm going to get rid of murderers. I'm just going to get rid of them. And he watches the news for names of murderers and he writes down their names and they just die in prison or they die uh, during a police standoff. And, you know, it starts like he's saving people who are taken hostage by these criminals. You know, the criminal just dies, ends the hostage standoff. Um, He, um, you know, in the modern day, this is, I think it came out in the 90s, maybe the early 2000s. Um, but in the modern day, he would be like writing down names of terrorists and they would just yeah. perish, right? And to some extent, you think, all right, that's maybe not so bad. You, you know, you're taking out um, people who are going to take out more people, you know, from a utilitarian standpoint, right. that does make sense. Um, but as it goes along and he uses this evil power more, he starts expanding. And he starts um, growing to greater levels of self-importance and uh, narcissistic God complex. Um, he's taking out all criminals, regardless of what they did. You know, if he's taking out just accused criminals, then he starts taking out um, uh, political rivals and like uh, people who are causing um, harm in other places. And then he's taking out people who criticize his uh, person, his public persona, that kind of thing. So. I, having watched this and having been an edgy teen at one point in my life, uh, said, if I had this book, would I use it? And my answer was definitely yes. 
Now, that's not good of me. I try right. to be neutral good. That's my aspirational alignment. And that, that would be definitely contradicting that. But would I use that power to solve a few problems and try and um, protect a lot of people who stand to be really harmed? Yeah, definitely I would. Would it destroy me as a person? Yeah, yeah it definitely yeah. would. Like that power would corrupt me and I would become evil. Definitely. And I would make the world a worse place in the long run. Well, would I use it? Yeah, because I'm weak. I'm a, I'm a human being. We all have those impulses and those dark, intrusive thoughts. And um, then 2020 happened and Trump did not get reelected. And I felt better. Yeah. Not all the way better, obviously. Still lots of problems, lots of, lots of difficulties. But I, there was some ray of hope. Yeah. Because it was looking really bleak there for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still very scared. I'm very nervous about what is, you know, what is coming. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, this last uh, week we had a couple of elections uh, internationally. And yeah. what happened in Austria is part of a larger pattern. It is frightening. And, you know, and so I, I feel that nervousness about, you know, can we hold on to this hope and what can I do? I think a lot of us are, you know, in that place where, you know, these forces seem so large and yet the impacts can be very close to home. And so how do you, you know, do something about it? But yeah, right. how, and yet recognizing if I had the power to magically solve it, I am not the person who would magically solve it because the problem then would be me. <laughs> like, I am not perfect either, you know. It, uh, it, it harkens back to that thing I was saying earlier about um, foresight and uh, long-term thinking. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, we see a solution. Uh, we see a nail standing up from a board and we have a hammer. And uh, obviously we're going to use the hammer to hammer down the nail. Right. But then you start to think about um, well, where did that nail go? Like, what's on the other side of that board? Right. Well, that's that's even, my very simple analogy. The foresight to say, if I had that book, I would use it and ultimately make the world a worse place. See, the foresight is, you know, and yet we can know the good and not do the good. Like, yeah. if I suddenly had the power, even knowing this will start off fine and it will get to a really dangerous place. How do I stop myself? I mean, I think that's a, that's a tension that really can inform our work in a really positive way. How do we have characters who are sympathetic because we understand that they are flawed and fallen and we are too, as, as the writers, you know, entering into that world and all of our readers are too. Exactly. I mean, you know, uh, whether you're a GM or a writer, you got to be able to present villains who are compelling and interesting um sometimes they're villains who have very understandable motivations we talked earlier about uh villains wanting to change the system for the better yeah. poison ivy wants to save the world she doesn't necessarily want to kill humans although she doesn't mind killing yeah. humans uh humans depending on who's writing her depending on what era we're talking about like she might want to just destroy all humans because they're a threat to the natural world and is she wrong eh, not well, really i mean we we are what what is better like that is an, right. an interesting question you know the, the I, I think the best villains have a motivation where we can say i can kind of i, I can kind of see where they're coming from maybe i disagree with their their methods but I, the the better they want is a better i can believe in uh yeah. and i just disagree with how they're going about it i mean if you look at say killmonger from the black panther movie like his 
motivation, his background, his ideology, philosophy was entirely understandable. Yeah. And what he was attempting to do, which is liberate oppressed people all around the world. I mean, yeah, that's great. Right. Like, like who wouldn't want to do that? Well, the f- forces of conservatism don't want that to right. happen. Right. So um, uh, what, do, what do we got to do? Uh, you know, um, a third of the way into the movie, we got to make sure that everyone knows this guy's the bad guy. Right. <laughs> so we're going to have him shoot some people uh, for really no reason. Yeah. And uh, yeah, then you're going to know, oh, he's the bad guy. This is like the the thing that happened with the villains in uh, Captain America and the Winter Soldier, too. Like uh, enough time went on and you started to go, you know, maybe they have a point. Oh, oh, they just uh, burned down a building with people inside. Oh, yeah, yeah, bad guys. OK, but it's the means, right? I don't you know, I, I, I can identify with their their objectives. Oh, but I didn't like what they just did to get there, you know, and right. Uh, so yeah, that, that is, that's of course, shorthand. Like, let's show the most extreme thing they did, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that is, of course, a writing device that yeah. we utilize in telling a, a narrative. Um, and sometimes it's really heavy handed <laughs> yeah. and sometimes it's a bit more subtle. Um, yeah, if you I, can... my, my most recent, the series that I'm uh, writing right now, uh, the, uh, the, the main characters, a couple of main characters, are a vampire and a werewolf. And they're these really likable characters. Fans love the, my, my, my vampire, and my werewolf. And I have to like remind the reader they do eat people like they're not you know but you know actually you know they'll, uh, there's a scene where they you know they they do do some feeding and then a lot of the story goes on and then they are hungry they have to eat again and i had readers I had the editors go oh yeah that was really disturbing because i came to like this character but they do kill people like <laughs> you know muddying that uh you know what is what is villainy uh uh you know we can all understand the motivation of I'm hungry. I need to eat. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, tell folks about what is going on with you in terms of your writing life right now. What should they be checking out? Cause this is exciting. We our, our timing is very good. Okay. So yes. Uh, last week, time of recording, um, I published a novel with my co-writer Amanda Cherry, who I believe you've had on the show before. Last week's show, yes. Yeah, so she recommended she recommended show, me, yes. and yeah, Amanda's great. Um, called uh, Femmes Fatale to Bad Intentions, uh, which is a sequel to the original Femmes Fatale movie, our movie pff, book, uh, which came out last year about this time. And um, here, I'll just pop up the uh the background Excellent. of the Thank book you. um it's about these two uh these two women who are you know around 40-ish and have had a history uh, with their with superheroing or super villainy as the case may be and um they end up uh wildly attracted to each other and then they're trying to put together some kind of relationship although one of them definitely doesn't want to call it a relationship so it's more of a situation ship yeah uh and uh they're dealing with uh secrets and uh trying to be honest and intimate and open with each other um the intimacy they're often very good at the emotional intimacy much more difficult Mm -hmm. and of course this is a major human challenge right how do you build those relationships how do you really touch with somebody how do you really connect with somebody how do you trust somebody especially when you're highly traumatized and surrounded by you know terrible people opposing you at every turn right and that's what this series is about 
Um, next month, at time of recording, January 2024, uh, I'm going to put out two novels that are prequel novels to my overall Justice Vengeance series, uh, which features uh, this lady, Lady Vengeance, as the main character of that series. Uh, those particular novels are uh, prequels when she was an edgy teen in the 90s. Uh, they're called Girl Vengeance rather than Lady Vengeance because that was her name at the time. And uh, they are called Pretty Hate Machine and The Downward Spiral, respectively. Uh, there might be a little bit of a theme. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 right away. Yep, okay. That was also me and, you know, what, 1996 or whatever. <laughs> yes. Yep. They take place in 90, in 1996, Chicago, I believe. Yep. Yeah, yeah, we'll be listening to exactly. our Nine Inch Nails. Excellent. Um, so uh, tell folks about how Amanda mentioned this, but folks who uh, didn't catch last week's episode, the way these the the Femme Fatale Femmes Fatales books came about is really interesting because these started. This is wild. Tell everybody about this. Okay, so uh, Amanda and I tell the story somewhat differently because we <laughs> had very different um, perspectives on each other. Uh, she was apparently incredibly intimidated by me because her first uh, exposure to me was reading one of the novels that I wrote, uh, Eye for an Eye, which is uh, another prequel story that takes place in 2015, I think, something like that, um, which features Lady, Lady Vengeance. Vengeance. Okay. Yeah. Um, as a grown-up, she hasn't really returned to superheroing yet, but she uh, she still has her powers and she still makes terrible mistakes. Anyway, it's fine. Yeah. Um, and so Amanda was like real nervous uh, because we were having a story summit for the Cobalt City universe, which is the superhero universe where mm. all these characters exist or crossover. And uh, she ended up sitting next to me and I'm pretty tall and, <laughs> and she is not. And so she was like, ha, 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 the whole time which I was completely oblivious to. I was like, well, she seems nice and has good ideas. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that very summit- entertaining. Like she is, she's a ton of fun. Absolutely. That summit was to discuss an anthology where we were going to do, a, it was a team up anthology where each of us would pick one of our favorite characters uh, and another author would work with us to write a team up story with those two characters. Um, and Amanda uh, had this character, Ruby Killingsworth, which is the most evil CEO name you could possibly oh, yeah. come up with. And um, and I had Lady Vengeance and uh, Amanda had really liked Eye for an Eye and I really liked the what she was writing that became um, Rights and Desires with um, Ruby and uh, Stardust. It was just a short story at the time, right? It was, you know- Well, we were planning- Yes. Uh, when we were talking about this anthology, we were just going to write a short story where Lady Vengeance and Ruby meet. Yeah. And um, it was going to be one of those things where they'd either uh, start fighting or fall madly into bed with each other. And we looked at each other and we're like, well, both of those things could happen. And uh, so sure enough, we started writing the story and both Amanda and I are very prolific in terms of like, putting together words and uh, and just writing, writing, writing the story. And uh, our story was the only one that survived from that original uh, conversation. Like everyone else just got busy and they, you know, did other things, moved on to different things. But Amanda and I wrote our story 
and we wrote up to the 2,000, 3,000 word planned uh, thing. And we're like, this is really good. We should write more. And so we wrote more and more and more. And then over the course of a couple of years, the pandemic happened and it became our kind of like um, one of our pandemic relief projects mm -hmm. to just write, you know, when we feel like it, because it's really fun. And we like the characters. We like the story. Uh, Amanda describes it as all vibes, no plot. Um, I forced us to put a plot into it. I did that with the second book as well. <laughs> yes, readers, um, thank you. Plot is nice too. And uh, finally, we turned over the first uh, draft to our editor and said, uh, do you think there's a book in this? And she said, well, there's actually two books in this. One book that is the actual book. And then the other book, which is the epilogue, which is 30,000 words long. And is really just like the next year of them vibing. And we're like, huh, you're right. So now we're writing the second book came out last week. Yeah, uh, there is a third book also, which is in the planning. And that one is called Femmes Hotel 3 Bad Romance. And 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 the, what's the timeline on that one? Because my understanding is this is really compressed, right? Do we have well, a sense of that, when that one's coming out? Um, so the first Femmes came out last year around this time. Second Femmes came out this year around this time. Third Femmes is probably not going to come out next year around this time because chronologically, like a lot of things happen in that universe before the third Femmes book. Okay. So you've given yourself so, a little flexibility there. Right. If we brought it out next year, it would be a little confusing and potentially spoilery for a bunch of other books that haven't been published yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of um, my Justice Vengeance series, which starts with Libations for the Dead, is what the first one is called. Um, this uh, young uh, unknown scion of uh, superheroes uh, finds out that his father is basically the Superman of that world. And he's long since dead. He, he never met him, doesn't have the opportunity to meet him. But he does uh, have a chance encounter with Lady Vengeance, who was on that same superhero team and can theoretically tell him about his father, right? And they get caught up in superheroics, and she gets kind of pulled out of retirement, and it's it's great. And that's the Justice Vengeance series. Links down below. Um, Libations for the Dead is out. I ran a Kickstarter for it earlier this year. Successfully funded. I published that book in April, May, something like that. Anyway, the second book, which is called Public Enemy, named after the band, um, comes out middle of next year. Oh, that's exciting. So it's yeah, you really do have like three books coming out within a year. At least at least three books coming Holy out next cow. year. That's a lot. Uh, you know, I think uh, folks out there a, might not know. That's a lot. <laughs> there might there might be more. Who knows? Uh, but um Public Enemy, like and the first Femmes Fatale book take place around the same time. Actually, um Lady Vengeance. Uh, is in Seattle for a chapter of Public Enemy and then immediately leaves to go back east to do stuff in Femmes Hotel. And then she comes back and um, the other characters have been doing stuff and, and they're like, and she's like, did, did you even notice I was gone? And they're like, uh... And she says, <laughs> I was possessed by a demon. And they're like, hmm... And she's like, never mind. Let's just yeah. get on with it. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Nice. So you get, and that's, and that's in the text of uh, Femmes Fatale where they're <laughs> nice. Right. There's another whole story you can go find about her time away. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that is incredibly exciting. Like so much in, uh, you know, a year that's, uh, that's, I hope you are doing launch parties. I hope you are celebrating because uh, writers <laughs> do not celebrate enough. And that's, you, it's you, true. We do need to acknowledge our accomplishments. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I tell writers, like, if you were in any other field, it'd be, you know, oh, it, it's Susie and Chipping and Receiving's birthday. There's a cake in the break room, right? But writers, <laughs> you don't right. have that. And so we need to celebrate these achievements. So, yeah, I, I hope you uh, have some some big parties this year for yourself because that's 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 a big deal. Uh, okay, so one of the other things we do uh, is each week I post a poll question for the universe. Try and remember to po post a poll question for the universe. So what would be your question for everyone? Okay, so I, I gave this some thought. And um, this is going to be a fantasy question. Um, there's a lot of talk about magic systems and how you do magic and fantasy. And lots of authors do it in very different ways. So my question would be, do you prefer a clear and precise magic system or do you prefer magic to be weird and unpredictable? Yeah. The the, the Lord of the Rings magic that, you know, it's, it's, it's this amorphous, some people have it, you know, like, but it doesn't yeah. follow clear rules or have clear consequences to the magic wielder. Yeah, wild. Lord magic. of the Rings magic, the Game of Thrones magic, yeah. where magic is dangerous and strange and you're not sure what's going to happen yeah yeah uh versus systems that you know and i i think yeah I, I, that 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 is a really interesting question for fantasy writers and fantasy readers like which i think i might yeah. fall into the two camps depending on whether i'm doing the reading or the writing i like yeah. i like the uh I, I love so many stories that have that wild magic but as a writer i want to understand the system a little mm -hmm. more so and some readers want a system that makes more sense so yeah that's an interesting question i'll, I'll be interested to see where people uh, fall on that one as I get older and as I write more, I find myself more drawn to the strange and unpredictable magic. Mm -hmm. uh, it's partly because I, I grew up with the, the Vancey and D&D magic. And um, now that I'm, that I'm just kind of evolving with my writing style and my gaming style, I, I like weird, uh, visceral, uh, dangerous magic. You may have noticed my background, which um, I use this when I run my um, Delta Green games, uh, which is, for those of you who don't know, it's like uh, X-Files if the X-Files were investigating Cthulhu. I was I was going to say the, the the so the folks listening can't see this but you've got this series of spirals that that to, to me look like ten, tentacular is that a word uh, yep. is that an adjective uh, it looks like a a cthulhu esque kind of tentacle behind you it is very cool and then spiraling in uh so that yeah and I have been playing with that uh cthulhu kind of uh you know eldritch monsters that are uh you know kaiju kind of but can mm -hmm. you know potentially end the world and are powerful in ways that do not follow our laws of physics and yeah. that is fun to write uh as you know but but i have worried about is the reader going to go this character is so overpowered and the, the the defeat of them feels like a MacGuffin. so figuring yeah. out how to do that in a, in a way that 
feels right to the reader uh, and is foreshadowed enough and feels plausible. And at the same time, the monster does feel wild and unpredictable is a, is a right. real trick. It's an interesting yeah. balance. Oh, Lovecraftian, but I'm getting into the writing process. Lovecraftian magic and cosmic fantasy uh, really lean into that. Yeah. Magic being strange and unpredictable. And um, the chances of, of humans successfully pulling off magical effects are not great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, in terms of my worldview, I like that. Like, you know, let's break down this illusion that we understand everything that's going on around us and everything is within our control. Like, I like this idea, uh, but how do you capture that on the page in a constrained system of literally a bus? It's a system language, you know, and so that is that is a fun thing to play with. How do you get at the ineffable with words, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, I was also going to recommend uh, for anyone who is like really interested in this like ineffable magic and maybe heard what I said about Delta Green and is really interested. Uh, there's a series of books uh, called The Laundry Files by Charles Strauss, mm. uh, which is just a really good encapsulation. It's like, um, I, I don't know if Delta Green or uh, had any influence on his writing like these books came out in the uh, early 2000s 2004 is the first one um but like who uh, he just took stuff from their head and put it into his books mm. and whether that happened organically or mystically i don't know but it's it's a great little feel and aesthetic um i recommend those books they're pretty good it's yeah. it's a little bit like james bond except he's a computer nerd and he's investigating uh weird cosmic horror yeah which would be outside of the wheelhouse of somebody who likes computer systems so that that tension i think is that's i i will absolutely check that out that's that gets at that tension that i'm trying to kind of explore too so yeah a lot of oh yeah it might be very helpful for what you're trying to capture the um the magic and uh weird math of the cosmic is uh, is part of um, the the computerizing systems that he, he works on. They recruit agents for the laundry. That's the the British agency that investigates uh, Cthulhu stuff, uh, based on people who accidentally come close to casting uh, an evil spell, usually through um, uh, programming and uh, you oh, know, calculating so it's not, mathematic this person theorems. is intentionally doing the occult. This person you know got too close on accident with a keystroke error right yeah. and then lawn the agents from the laundry will show up and they'll either kill the person or recruit them essentially yeah. so yeah it's That's really interesting cool. highly recommend yeah. it. and it has a certain a certain amount of that dry british uh like sarcasm and wit that it it's it's fun yeah, well, we'll put links uh, for folks who want to check that out, but I certainly want to check that out. So totally. what is something that you've not read that you're looking forward to? Uh, let's see. So um, I am I am hopelessly behind on my reading, you know, between my day job and all yeah. my writing and uh, and uh, Baldur's Gate 3. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you'd asked me that yesterday, uh, there's this book called The Unspoken Name uh, by A.K. Larkwood. Uh, it's pretty popular. It's a, a fantasy um, about uh, this this young woman who is uh, connected to a um, in, an ineffable god of some kind. And uh, I, I don't want to spoil it, but 
um, I had been meaning to read that, and I actually started reading it yesterday. So I can't, ah, okay. I can't really, I can't really say that that's the one I'm looking forward to. Um, I am doing a. But it's been uh, good so far. Oh, it's it's fantastic. Okay, I am doing good. a reread of The Black Company by Glenn Cook. Mm, I don't know that one. Oh my god, it's classic um, anti-hero fantasy from the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, Glenn Cook's writing was very much ahead of its time. It was doing the kind of thing that Martin was doing, yeah, before Martin was doing it. Um, there, the Black Company is this band of you know amoral mercenaries. Well, amoral might be a hard thing to say about them, but they're like cruel, pragmatic, practical, and they uh, they take any job, no matter how dirty, as long as they're getting paid for it, right? Yeah. Uh, and um, just it's a dark fantasy world and most of the people are just terrible, terrible. Yeah. People. It's, and, it's, uh, uh, it's blood Meridian as a fantasy. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Yes. It has that, that dark fantasy has this kind of noir legacy yeah. that uh, really influences it. And you can see that in the early iterations. Like I consider Conan, the Conan stories to be kind of part of the birth of this dark fantasy, uh, sense and then it's just gone on from there yeah um into you know what we call grim dark um a friend of mine um refers to that as grim dark crap sack <laughs> he's like yeah all right i don't want to play D and we're like yeah but we're playing in this homebrew setting he's like i don't know homebrew setting it's grim dark crap sack world he's like i'm in <laughs> yeah oh so great that that is not a uh no that's his thing he, he, he loves likes it. grim dark crap sack yeah well he, he's also a former you know vampire of the masquerade sort of player so yeah like he likes the dark stuff yeah and so do uh, i i mean you know yeah. a lot of my stuff is dark fantasy and uh, my superheroes have a certain amount of darkness and it creeps in yeah yeah and i and i i appreciate it both as a reader and a writer like i like books where the person's not saying you know i i tell folks i like a little bit of hope at the end not too uh, much just a little bit of hope you know don't give me and and then it was all miserable and, and bleak and the, the you know but like maybe okay that's enough not too much and then i'm like i can buy into this fits with my experience of the world i'm fighting for a little bit of hope definitely um, and yeah that's that's more or less where i end on things yeah. like a lot of my endings are kind of not necessarily ambiguous but like theoric like yeah. some good things happen you get the sense that um, things might turn out better, but yeah. they haven't been all fixed. Yep. Uh, yeah. I, if people tie up all the, you know, oh, every knot went into a nice little bow, I'm going, this, uh, you, you, you lost me. This is not the way the world works, you know? So yeah, I, I like that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so where can readers find your work online? Okay. So um, I do have a website, ericscotttobe.com, which uh, is oft overlooked and rarely updated um overlooked by me like i, I frequently forget to update yeah, yeah. it so but it does list uh, it does list all my works i have a um ericscotttobe.com slash bibliography will give you a list of all my works at least most of them i think i still need to update it and add a couple of uh a couple of new things um i'm on twitter or x if you prefer twitter. um <laughs> yeah no <laughs> again eric scott to be um I mostly talk about politics and yell at right wingers, but like, you know, that's a, that's a place to learn about um, my work and publications and uh, things that I'm doing. 
come and watch us on the Dungeon Scrawlers. I am yeah. often on uh, shows on our Twitch channel, uh, twitch.tv slash Dungeon Scrawlers, link down below. Um, let's see. I do have a Facebook page because I am an old person. Right. <laughs> and it's where a lot of the readers are. We go where the readers are. Uh, yeah, uh, basically. And uh, I'm on Blue Sky as well. Uh, just under my own name everywhere. Um, I am not uh, in any way hiding. Yeah, yes, we can't afford to. We need to be where the readers are. So yes, yeah. okay, well, we'll post links to all those things in the uh, show notes. Um, and so I, I want to ask you, who else should I have on the show? Uh, who, what are some folks you would recommend getting, you know, reaching out to? Okay, well, I mentioned Erin Evans, yeah. um, who is also on the Dungeon Scrawler. She actually runs that Fearful Symmetry game that I was talking about. Oh, okay. Uh, and she's fantastic. Like, she's kind of a latecomer to uh, tabletop games. She just started playing D&D when she took a job as an editor at Wizards. Oh. She was editing the Eberron books and uh, also some of the Forgotten Realms books. So that's how we first met. She was an editor on one of my books. Oh, cool. Uh, and so... So she didn't start gaming until she was 20s, maybe 30. But she is just a natural at it. I don't don't know how she does it. Like she weaves the story threads together. Really, really recommend it. So she can she could tell you a lot about gaming and a lot about writing and a lot about editing and a bit about publishing. So yeah, she would be a very good person to talk to. Yeah, she, Other, she'd be a good person for the re the, the, the listeners of the show and also for me to talk to privately about <laughs> anybody <laughs> yeah. who's got insights into publishing. Like I am uh, you know, the publishing world is so opaque. And there are all these things where I would find them out, you know, after I'd been doing it for, you know, five years and go, why did no one ever tell me that? Like, it's, yeah, so that would be very helpful. Other Dungeon Scrawlers, uh, Rihanna Held would be a great person to talk to. Uh, Yang Yang Wang, who uh, does a lot of our tech stuff. Uh, um, and uh, Stephen Merlino, who is one of the um, people who thought up the Dungeon Scrawlers in the first place. Randy Henderson, uh, another longtime writer. Um Emily Tang, although she's probably real busy because she uh, just um, had her second child just fairly recently and uh, works at Wizards currently, so she's got a lot going on. I I will happily talk to all of them and see if anyone's interested. Oh, that'd be great. Um, We have a bunch of Cobalt City people. Uh, Nathan Crowder, who is the founder of the Cobalt City universe, or I should say one of the sort of founder people of the Cobalt City universe. It was based on a campaign that he ran 40 years ago right cool uh and it's it's great um and uh rosemary jones who wrote a bunch of forgotten realm stuff and is also cobalt uh city person and is currently writing for arkham horror with uh, aconite out of uh, the united kingdom uh she would be great to have on the show Uh, let's see i think i wrote more people down too uh uh oh yeah uh if possible you should get um my buddy rob schwalb on your show so rob is a longtime game designer he worked on um, fourth edition he worked on fifth edition uh and then he became an independent uh game designer he owns schwalb entertainment he produced shatter the demon lord and uh um the the weird wizard thing now i i completely forget what it's called but it got like four hundred thousand dollars on kickstarter this year oh my gosh and and like he's just he's just doing it all himself out of yeah. his uh out of his dark 
pit in Tennessee or wherever it is that he lives. And he is a great guy. Um, I think you'd get along real well. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. Those are the people who occur to me immediately. Well, that would be cool because, you know, I, I, my impulse is always, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to novelists and poets because this is kind of the world I know. And I've been trying to, you know, go, oh, okay, there are these folks who are doing writing, you know, game design is very much valid writing. Like, how do I find, you know, and so uh, reaching out to folks who are in other fields of writing, uh, I think it would be fun too. So yeah, I'll, I'll certainly reach out to Rob as well. But yeah, thank you for all of those wonderful names. I will reach out and try and connect with them. Yeah. Oh, okay. And I'll send you the list, obviously. Yeah. Thank you. Um, okay, so before we get to our send-off, some folks I need to thank. Uh, thanks to our uh, the artist Max Oakland, who reached out and provided one of his songs for our intro song, the song I Prefer the Dusk. Uh, let Max know you like it by following him on Twitter at Max Oakland with three Ds. And thanks to Halizna CCO for their song Kids for the ad break. If you're in a band and you'd like your song used on the show, I'd love to highlight a listener's work like Max's song. So email that to me. Uh, also visual art, if you've got you know a, a cooler logo for the show or whatever, if you are an artist and you'd like to uh, have your art featured on the show, I love to support folks uh you know where wherever you are in your in your career um thanks to doug the producer for making this show sound good and taking the blame when it doesn't thank you so much doug uh, <laughs> i cannot yeah cannot forget to mention writers not writing is a production of not a pipe publishing so please go to not a pipe and check out the amazing books written by writers who didn't procrastinate too much if you like this show rate and review it wherever you found it and please check out eric's justice vengeance series uh the first of which is libations for the dead tell a friend about it that makes a huge difference and then if you can give it that click on that fifth star and say this was a lot of fun your reviews don't have to be long to make a big difference so let eric know uh let the world know that you enjoyed the justice vengeance series Much uh and the show too you know click on the little thumbs up button and uh and and write a little comment and remember i am you know uh, uh susceptible to psychic damage so be gentle um <laughs> Okay, so uh, for our send-off, Eric and I want you to remember some things this week. Eric, what's your advice for everybody for this next week? All right, so I didn't I didn't really talk about this earlier. I often talk about this, but here it is. So the key to writing, to be a successful writer, to be an ongoing writer, to keep going, is perseverance. Perseverance is more important than connections, uh, being independently wealthy, <laughs> knowing who to, to who to work with before even being talented it is being unable to stop yeah you you recognize your own the value of your work recognize that your voice is important and just keep going yeah. keep trying however many times you get rejected by editors and publishers because you will and it's just the the way writing the writing world works keep pushing keep writing trust yourself trust your voice perseverance yeah I, I agree everything in the industry is designed to get in your way uh and i recognize it is designed to get in some folks way more than others but yes persevering powering through that is one of the keys however grindcore culture can have us uh, work ourselves into misery and so i also remind folks that a book without spaces would be gibberish and our lives need spaces too so don't ignore the spaces and third no matter how much you procrastinate we're still proud of you My time I'm